Dr. Koontz, we got listener questions this week, and we got to love auto. You call it auto correct. I think it's auto incorrect. I go back and forth. I turn it on. I turn it off in my life. But I am. I'm not going to forget that. Uh, hello, Doctor Joints and Rev Fisk. Um, that, that's that's got to be one of the the most fun. You know, is this referring to perhaps uh, your aging uh, elbows and knees, or or some right. other trend sweeping the west coast of the country? I don't know. Um, but he writes, uh, "I'm relatively a new listener to this podcast. I actually became aware of it when I found out that Doctor Koontz was going to be speaking at Return to Wittenberg last year in Oregon, Wisconsin. I don't know if he would remember our conversation, but I was the Wisconsin Synod Seminary student helping with the services." My question pertains to textual criticism. When I was a senior in college, I was introduced to the NKJV as an alternative to the NIV 211 by a classmate. I mean, that's a good work right there. He did. Jeez. Um, and I've really enjoyed reading it for devotions and using it for exegetical work. I understand yeah. it is translated from the um, TR in the New Testament. I'm not sure I'm familiar with the TR reference, which is not viewed in a positive light. Texas Receptus, that's what he's saying. Yeah. Um, so Texas Receptus, you know, the 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 text of the Greek manuscript that they basically had in the Middle Ages until the post Enlightenment brought about the study of more ancient manuscripts and the comparison of them in what is now the field of text criticism, and and so he's saying that the Texas Receptus uh, new scholarship generally does say is not as reliable in all cases as comparing and contrasting the over six thousand plus manuscripts that we do have for evidence of the New Testament. So, uh, in, you know, not valued in a positive light by modern scholars. That's what he says. I was yeah. wondering what your thoughts are on, on, on the issue. So this is something that the, the listeners should know is that the basis, the English text I'm using for the family Bible commentary is the New King James Version. That's NKJV when it's abbreviated. And I can I will explain why now, but that is also in the introduction in that forthcoming volume on Gospels and Acts. And it has to do with my understanding and evaluation of textual criticism, particularly of the New Testament, but more broadly. And that is that what changes in the, in the begins to change in the 18th century and completely changes such that the new translations that you get in the 19th century in most major European languages are going to be founded on a critical tradition, which is a given generation of scholars' reconstruction of what is actually the most accurate text of the New Testament. And this is applied also to the Old Testament in method, although with the Old Testament, you're always dealing with many, 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 many fewer examples. So the debates are somewhat different. But with the New Testament, what changes is that the vast majority of ancient manuscripts of the New Testament fall within what's called the Byzantine tradition, textual tradition, or what is abbreviated for the pastors if they have a Nestle Allen Greek New Testament as a Gothic letter M, and that M stands for majority text. TR for Textus Receptus is the small subset of that tradition that was available in the 16th and 17th century for the translators of things like the Luther Bible and the King James Bible. That's a, it's much broader. There's a lot more going on there. And so the basis for the new King James, for example, which comes out as a complete Bible in 1982 is broader, not terribly distinct, but broader than the Textus Receptus. What year was that? What year? New King James, I believe the New Testament is 78 and the entire Bible is 82 or 83. Okay. And, and for reference, do you have the King James date memorized by any chance? King James first edition is 1611, but the King James Bible that you buy when you buy a King James Bible is very, very edited for particularly vocabulary and grammar in the 18th century. So you'd have to get a specific 1611 copy to actually see what comes out in right. 1611. In that, do you have an 18th century major date that that hubs around? Just so I, can I want to say that's box? a seven. Yeah, I want to say that's the 1730s. Okay, and they, because they were they had a they had a problem of comprehension on a vocabulary level, not on the level of yes. what was already antiquated yeah. in 1611, which is the ancient usage of thee and thou, the things that we think are old timey sounding. They were old timey in 1611 and that was on purpose. 
Right. To, that to wasn't kind of founded as a uh, as a re, well, not resource is the wrong word, but you know, an institutional memory. Like this, this is meant to sound like it's been here a while. Yeah. Well, it, there's kind of two reasons for keeping, especially those those second person pronouns being formal and informal. Number one is that grammatically Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek have that distinction. Same they have formal yeah. and yeah. informal. And so you're getting a better rendering of, okay, he's talking to the whole church or he's yeah. just talking yeah. to Peter or whoever. Right. So by that, you're also formal, informal. You're talking about the plural you, right? Y'all. Yep. Y'all. Mm -hmm. You got the y'all yep. back. <laughs> right. And so, so that's the number one reason. The number two reason is literary. And I think this is very savvy of the King James translators of Luther and his associates of the people that produce the Dutch Staten all those Reformation era translators, is that they actually know the original languages well enough to know that the original languages themselves sound, rhetorically speaking, sound antiquated. <laughs> so there was this idea that informs the translation of what Seminarian Billets references the NIV 2011, that's the new international version, the update in 2011. That is an update of what originally came out in, I think, 78 for the New Testament and 84 for the whole Bible as the new international version. That new international version is based on a completely different translation philosophy than you get in the Reformation era. So the textual basis is different because modern textual criticism says if something is if a physical manuscript is older, then it's more valid. It's a better witness. So always, it's going to trump. Right. It's yeah, like an always gonna, thing. Right. And so it trumps vast usage or the vast majority of texts or whatever. And they explain that in the introduction to any critical text of the New Testament, including the one that pastors listening will be familiar with in Nestle Allen. The translation philosophy is also different because it became an it became a commonplace, and you can always hear commonplaces when you have a a parish pastor try to explain something like textual criticism because he's probably going to be using commonplaces unless he's looked into it a lot since he graduated seminary. So he's going to remember the things that he was told in his hermeneutics class or whatever. And the commonplace that was really widespread in the 20th century and really affected Bible translation is that the New Testament particularly is written in quote newspaper Greek. Or everyday language, yeah, and that just is simply it's not true. It's not. It's not true. Not true. Yeah, frustratingly evil. <laughs> I'd even say, yeah. And so, so that drove the reading level, the comprehension level, the vocabulary choices of Bible translation throughout the 20th century. Yeah, well, and this even, is the whole thing. Yeah. Like, it's the broadest net, right? Like, the stupid people. Right. If we don't make it stupid for the stupid people, the stupid people won't get it. And what we did was we made everybody stupid, kind of. Right. And I, yeah, I, yeah. I got, I got. I want to jump in on the New King James yeah, go for uh, it. bandwagon if I can, because um, I picked it up 2020. Uh, Brian Wolfmuller had been using it for years, and I, I finally asked him, you know, why. He just said, "Because." Mm. <laughs> and so I'm, I just tried it personally, and you know, sometime I'm, I'm going to encourage St. Paul here in Rockford to move to it because. Compared to the ESV, which I went to from the NIV at the seminary at their recommendation, and then we fought yeah. over it at the next convention, but CPH won, <laughs> and it was the one we had the rights to, and so that's right. cop copyright strikes again, baby. Um, we I, I used it dutifully, um, tried to, to to promote it. We still use it in the services. Um, it's fine. The ESV is a f it's f it's fine with everything that fine means, right? Because fine is not good. You find it's definitely not good, uh, or it used to mean like, hey, baby, you're fine, right? But that's not what anybody means when they say it's fine. Uh, they mean it's okay. And that's the yeah. ESV. It's it's okay. And if you're gonna right. if you're gonna translate from Greek, you're gonna be like, oh, okay, I see what they're doing here. They're trying really hard to go word for word the best they can with the same thing, Dr. Kunz, you just said with the dumbed down approach to everything. We make sure we get yeah. the dumbest possible level of understanding that we can. Steal poetry. Forget it. Forget it. No poetry. Um, and, and on you go, uh, you know, just the facts and maybe it's a little Lutheran dogmatics-esque on that. Um, now, what I am, I'm going to shift gears to make my case though here. So I, after using okay. this thing for three years, three plus years, um, and, and, you know, anyone who follows all the stuff I do, and we've been here for all this time, you know, I've been on a bit of a journey of discovery among other things, but I am convicted now that we live in a time in which the hardening of the conscience of Western civilization post King James English as our primary linguistic dictionary 
has now reached such a level of cacophonous babble that we are turning from what was thought of as a global language into more of a form of many pigeon versions of it. Only they don't look like pigeon versions of it. People think they're talking about tolerance, right? But they're not, right? And so English has got like many, many dialects at work right now. And they're on every channel on your phone and they're different. And everybody's basically forming their own. So like no one understands me and I'm a cat and leave me alone and and the insanity of it all. And this is all about a matter of vocabulary, I believe, that is enshrined in scripture as a a possibility. the, The New Testament gospel of Acts is that the Holy Spirit has transcended Babel and the texts of the Bible are there to never be Babylonianized. They can't be if we continue to return to them generation after generation, own their meaning, confess, transform, translate, right? Um, and, and in this then, the New King James provides for any English-speaking American a, a verbal root system and a, a grammatical root system in modern uh, pidgin global English that is, to use a word, from the Germain sound. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of German root in the King James more than the 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 romance and the Greek influence of the Enlightenment brings on circa Plato and others. And and if you go back, you'll find you use a lot less of certain types of words. But these words they travel far, and they believe it. I'm I'm coming from the Hebrew now. They hit the Hebrew way better than a, than a lot of newer translations. Right. And so you get into the Psalter and you find real distinctions happening in the English. The poetry is actually still there. Words like integrity and wisdom really matter, go a long way. And so I'm finding in my own home that going to the New King James intentionally, turning off outside inputs into the house, we do still listen to some Christian radio, you know, there's podcasts, hardcore history, blah, blah, blah. but like we're not watching TV for three hours. We turned off the other voices and what's happening is our voices over, over the years are unifying in a common tongue. And I'm not going to say this is the actual gift of tongues, although I'm not going to say it ain't. <laughs> At the end of the day is how it works. That the Christian is able to hear and translate. And part of that is that we're so founded upon a certainty, a certainty in the text that you're advocating here, Dr. Koontz. And I, and I agree that whether or not, I think I can, I, I would make the case there are places where the older text might inform a, a difference in, in, you know, what belongs in, in the New Testament. And I, I think John 8, honestly, or Mark 16 are good examples. You know, I think we disagree and we can have a ton of fun having a public debate about that or something. Um, right. But but to me, that it, the point is like swinging off to one side or the other is a mistake. But what the King James, be a Jacobite, my son, what the King James did was they translated with intention into English the vocabulary, the best that they could find in, in the way that they could. And the relic of that tradition now in the New King still stands firm as like the best resounding, can you say scripture interpreting scripture, English dictionary on the planet. You want to talk so people understand you. So common sense is part of your, just the way you talk, get in the New King James and use it as your daily bread. And that's my case for it. Hardcore. I'm not saying it's the only thing I'd love to have our own translation based on it, frankly. Um, but I'll let you, you know, go back into you're doing a commentary, which is just as good. Yeah. I, I think that the thing that the King James tradition, whether you're reading the King James or the New King James connects you to is the rest of the history of the English language. Because one of the, and this is more, so this is more of a brief history of power type of point than some of the more technical stuff I already said or that you said, is that when you get cut off linguistically, you are cut off altogether. So this is a case we frequently make as confessional Lutherans for the liturgy. But the thing about the liturgy is that it's you know not supposed to change all the time. It's supposed to be standard. It gives you a vocabulary. It's supposed to permit maturation in the Christian faith. You realize new things as you return to that festival again the next year or those readings the next year or whatever. Our Bible translations, and I didn't really think about this honestly when I first came out of seminary, but one Sunday at Mount Calvary, my first parish, I was reading out of the lectionary book that was printed by Concordia Publishing House back in 2006 to come out with the then new Lutheran service book. And that's English standard version. And I'm reading. And then in the bulletin, we have the Mm. English standard version printed out Mm. and it's not the same. No. And the people are confused. I mean, they're like, they're like scowling at their bulletins as I'm reading. And (laughs) I mean, I think it was like pretty innocuous stuff. 
it wasn't the topic that was making no, no, them scout. No, 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 no. But you're picking were, up on this piece that like, yeah, they didn't tell you they were doing this when they started doing this. Like this wasn't yeah, broadcast. So you, have, <laughs> you now have auto updates on things like Bible Hub and Bible Gateway and stuff like that for translations without notification. That's not going on for the New King James. So what I did the very next Sunday is I just switched the readings to New King James and just started doing the readings mm. out of the out of the bulletin instead of out of the lectionary book. Right, so right, right. problem solved because it gives a sense of instability. And and I am also personally suspicious of some of these things hmm. as we go forward, because the thing about New International Version 2011 is that it slipped very Big time. quickly into gender neutrality and the insertion of the word sisters all over yeah, the place yeah, yeah, in the New yeah, Testament yeah, where yeah. it doesn't exist. It didn't slip, dude. It so, transitioned. Come on. Well, <laughs> it did. Yeah. And so as our Bible translations continue to transition according to ongoing, you know, ever-changing yeah. right, this, this political, whole political point. dictates, so that, I don't want that. Having this, this, this dialect that we, it's not that we enshrine it, there's going to come a point where no one can speak the current English anymore. It'll be gone. And, and by that point, there's some other language and it sounds like Latin. I mean, Jesus could come back. That'd be great. Let's have that instead. But if he tarries, right? The, the, the way that Babel works is that these tongues that we have, they last and then they don't. And they, they kind of conquer and then the rise and fall of nations is tied to it and the rise and fall of peoples, right? It's really about peoples as much as anything. And so what we're doing is we're finding a, a flood of language right now. There's a flood of language going on and it is attempting to take the peoples and make them one people by stripping them of everything that makes them have any identity and giving them a separate language in which they trust, in which, frankly, things like medication are, are gospel words, right? And so what, again, the New King James does just by de facto, and then you go back to the history of it and it's really good, right? The whole thing is really good. Um, but what it does de facto is it just jettisons you from that entire motion by giving you an anchor. Your language has an anchor now. I'm not even talking like the Holy Spirit yet, right? Like I'm just talking first article stuff. And, and I think that, you know, regeneration matters, <laughs> you know? So, so, but if we're going to be wise, we got to see that the game the devil is playing right now is to fill the air with so much noise that the words lose their meaning and a Bible that changes its meanings with regularity as its philosophy is doomed already. Right. And the King James as a tradition, including the New King James, uh, isn't that. It's like, well, if we're going to make an update, I'm looking at what your notes you just give me. Well, every 300 years or so, we probably should update this thing. That sounds about right to me. You know, that's fair. Latin, you know, Jerome's Vulgate in the 600s, 700s, they could have probably gone into some, you know, Middle English or something, right? Um, or is that old, old English by then? So the point though, I mean, I'm just, I'm totally on this with you. And I think that you're, you're making the same point, um, which is that a linguistic unity is, nece is necessary for the human creature and that God knows this and then built redemption into it. You know, <laughs> God's it, not dumb. <laughs> yeah, it it also it also is going to enable you not to feel and to be cut off in your thinking and your living from those who came before you. I yeah. mean, one reason that I support the common service now, you know, appearing in setting three for most of us listening to this in the service book is because it is actually ours. It is our church's liturgy in English. Other things are at this point in the whole scheme of things experiments, and maybe they'll last and maybe they won't, but they need to be recognized as that. So I don't have a problem with something that happens more often in German than in English, which is that some particularly brilliant person, this happened in English with N.T. Wright, for example, produces his own translation, usually of one testament. There are several of these in, in German for the New Testament. N.T. Wright did it in English. It's very interesting to read. I'm not going to read it in church. No, because it's not right. common. No, it's a commentary. It's church. It's yeah, a commentary. Church, is for, church is for common things so that the family can be built up in common in the various ways that the liturgy does and that a, a standard, stable text of the Bible does. Yeah. And without that, you're not just losing like, you know, I have this opinion about textual criticism and the relative weight of the Alexandrian manuscript tradition. Right. I can right. talk about that, but that's not really why this matters. No, right. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. This matters for the church's life and the, especially the church's sense that it didn't come from nowhere 
and therefore won't also pass into oblivion because you have all kinds of church forms of church life like that, that were really hot for a while, particularly in America where innovation occurs incessantly. Yeah. Yeah. Seminary uh, assignments to like write your own creed and stuff. I, I misheard you, but yeah. I think it's, it's fair point still um, that, uh, you know, N.T. writes. Is it the message? No, because that, that, there's another guy did it. That's too. Eugene Peterson's Peterson version of the same too, thing, right? So yeah, same idea. Um, the kingdom, know, the kingdom New Testament is what ooh, Wright's translation is called. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the it's a commentary. A single man's translation of the Bible is not a common translation of the Bible. Never shall be, or should not be. I mean, Luther did it right. He, so I, he, I guess didn't, he didn't do it alone. Yeah, he I, actually he did not do it alone. Yeah. Impossibly, yep. right? I mean, even yep. if he kind of makes the notes the first time, there's no way he gets to print by itself. Right. It's just not humanly possible. It's such a big thing. Um, the, the power of this uh, as a community, though, so the commentary of the, you know, the message aside, don't read commentaries in church. Um, the power of the text itself uh, to me, this just jives with so many other things about, say, you know, Lutheran doctrinaire Maddox, uh, you know, th that that we put such emphasis on the word and the power of the word and that the church is where word and sacrament is. Right. And that the office of the ministry is really ultimately uh, only the power of, of the word. That all sounds great when you're talking, you know, theory. But then the practice, the practices of this means that the, the words do have to be stable. And right. yep. while while our vocabulary in English is being gutted, the vocabulary is being gutted of transcendent and permanent meanings. Scripture interprets scripture as a principle, keeps those meanings, real meanings in real English, according to real eternal truth. So good still means good and evil still means evil, right? Uh, whereas right. The, the pagans calling evil good and good evil because they don't even know anymore. It's such a powerful argument, Dr. Kuntz. Um, I, I just, that's why I keep jumping on in it. Uh, as well. Do you want to say anything else before we move on to the uh, the more enlightening and fun question that comes up? <laughs> I, I think that this is this question of what Bible translation you use and who reads it, because the reason the pastor should read it is that reading involves interpretation. So mm. functionally, there really isn't much of a difference between the interpretation he provides at lesser length when he reads and the interpretation that he provides at greater length when he preaches. They're both yoked to that text. And if the text can't be understood or is always changing or he is not providing the interpretation, especially for the reading, you've got problems. This is at least as important, if not more important, than the worship wars that we fought because it concerns whether in the preaching, particularly, God's people have a sense that the words themselves will edify the church. And that the church needs the words and the grasp of the words and that the scroll that the church needs to eat like the prophet is the scroll of the words of god not something else for its flourishing or persistence or whatever it is that it's looking for and that you know sounds simplistic but the reason that you get an, an explosion of bible translation in the reformation era is because of their conviction before they started to translate that actually giving God's people his word in their own language would be powerful in ways that would be unforeseen. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the intention of the family Bible commentary and the way I have it structured the way I do is precisely because I want people to read the Bible at length every day. Oh, yeah. um, it's it's not structured as a complete reference on every question that you could possibly think of because I think you should look for those things in the Bible. Yeah. And if you can't find them there, then you probably don't need them. So I don't need to write 10 pages for you about them, like where precisely a particular place may be. What we're looking for really going forward is fresh conviction that scripture is actually sufficient. Amen. Right? Perspicuity, um, baby. Yeah, that it will actually do what it says. Yeah. And when the Bible's always changing, the translation's always changing, or people don't act, even actually know it in the same way that when the liturgy changes, they don't actually know it because yeah, it's not right. what they grew up with or whatever. Right. When that happens, then you are simply, you're, you're jeopardizing the church. That's what you're doing when you're constantly changing and there's constant uncertainty and who knows what's going on. And that's, that's not, that might be academically respectable, but it's not pastorally responsible. 
No, no. There's a proverb, a proverb about it, and I was trying to catch it before you, uh, you, you tailed off. It's that, you know, do not associate with those given to change because uh, destruction is effectively their brother. And that's just a fact. It's in the Bible. Believe it, guys. I know you like your guitar. I like guitar too. But, you know, running on ahead and splitting the church body right before COVID wasn't a great idea. Nope. All right. Let's uh, let's move on. Okay. Uh, <laughs> speaking of things that, you know, we maybe could have been paying attention to once upon a time. Um, <laughs> Long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I lived through it. And I, 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 I'll just say um, the response the response of 2020, 2021 was more or less the same. It's more or less the same response. Yeah. And and we probably could have asked more questions then. There were people who did. Everyone called them crazy. They're not so crazy. Um, and you know that now because it's in the news and on the websites of the companies doing these things. So anyway, here we go. Let's let's, uh, yep. go let's ahead. play with it. Um, Pastor Fisk and, and Dr. Joints. Oh, it, it doesn't say that. It says Dr. Coons, but that's my favorite joke ever. No, I am a big fan of the show. He says, I am just curious if Dr. <laughs> if Dr. Coons has any strange historical insights, as he often does, on, are you ready, everybody? What am I talking about? The United States treatment of 9-11. Specifically, specifically, you know, the dancing Israelis, the Patriot Act, and the decision to dump Osama bin Laden's body into the ocean after uh, he was he was killed. So three very specific things there. And I'll just say, you know, like, to, to kind of cap off everything I said a moment ago, like paying more yeah. attention, the Patriot Act. Yeah, uh, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Yeah, we could have paid attention to this. We really could have cared. We have the theology to care. This was not, this is evil. We, we could have said something. And we didn't. We just rolled right along. Go ahead, Dr. Koontz. So... The thing to know about each of those three questions, whether you're talking about the Israeli government's involvement or lack of involvement, depending on who you talk to, and the 9-11 commission report disclaims their involvement and implicates Middle Easterners, Arabs, and Afghans, or you're talking about the Patriot Act for which the ground was laid and you know that's all ready to go essentially once 9/11 happens or you're talking about the circumstances surrounding the death of Osama bin Laden you're dealing with three specific instances of something that in order not to get fooled again you need to start realizing and this is where the term woke or becoming awake or being awakened to something is always really unfortunate because when you have a mythology about someone waking up like you think of Rip Van Winkle or there are many European myths about a sleeping king inside the mountain who will awaken at a certain time. This is <laughs> King Arthur in that hideous strength, there, right? There's a book about uh, the LCMS actually called Awaken the Sleeping Giant too. Just Yeah, just Awaken the Sleeping Giant, right? <laughs> and so that, you know, if you are really impressed with your own church, then you can talk about that way too. <laughs> Whatever. Fine, right? The problem with thinking that way is that it it gives you a sense of time that is non-Christian. And that is that at any given time, you don't have to be awake, right? So when you think about Jesus talking about interpreting what is going on and watching what is happening and look and and in all of that looking for his return, he says, I say to you what I say to all, stay awake. So the assumption is that because you have risen in Christ already through holy baptism, you are awake with him, right? Awake sleepers and rise from the dead, right? So if we have to tell you to awaken to something, that means that you have in some measure failed. And the failure mm -hmm. here has to be acknowledged as a failure to understand that events happening in front of your eyes have sources elsewhere. 9-11 was completely predicated if you were old enough to remember or if you've done your research. And this is the way that events get used by the government media conglomerate. Regime. Yeah is that something happens, it's shown to you, and then they tell you what you should do about it. And since so many things happen and people are coming from places that are, and I'll go into some of this, I, I hope, as we continue to answer the question, but as people are coming from places that are very strange or hard to understand, or you've never been there and you're never going to go there, then it's that much easier to tell you what needs to happen going forward in order to avoid a repeat of what happened in front of your eyes. So when you're talking about 9-11, for example, let's talk about 
the Dancing Israelis references a video of five men who were first detained and then very quickly and without any further discussion or resolution of the issue, deported to Israel by the FBI, really transported to Israel by the FBI, who were on a rooftop from New Jersey, if I remember correctly, watching the towers fall and obviously excited about it. That has to do with something that a lot of Americans don't know anything about, which is Israel's place, both relative to the United States of America, which if you go back and you look at what has actually occurred, you could look at the bombing of the USS Liberty, which Israeli Air Forces knew was an American ship back in, I think that's 65. Or you can look at lots of other things. Um, and a book I've recommended before is a book by an Israeli written in English called Rise and Kill First, which is a history of their intelligence services and the methods that they employ, is that they are generally very swift and very brutal. And that relative to the United States of America, Israel acts like it's in charge of the US, not as a sort of, as it's sometimes portrayed in leftist media as like a colonial outpost of the United States. Israel has a much more powerful position relative to the United States of America than the US really does to Israel. We're much more of a donor and a benefactor than we benefit from the relationship so in any way. So that'd be called that'd be called more like a um, oh, I'm going to lose it, a client. Right? Yeah, we are yeah, right, exactly. And so what a lot of leftist discussion of Israel has to do with is they basically see them as a European settler state. So Israel is essentially the same thing as like and equally as evil as Rhodesia in leftist talk. That's why it's okay to criticize Israel if you're like Ilhan Omar, right? But if you look at the actual relationships between the intelligence services or the military services or the politicians or whatever, you're going to see time and time and time again that Israel does basically whatever it wants to do. And the United States deals with that. In the case of 9-11, you have a combination, therefore, of some knowledge by Israel in order to have those guys on site watching that something's going to happen. You also have people, and this is where most of the hijackers come from, from Saudi Arabia, who have, as you know, the flight at the, the gate attendant said, and a lot of these things are available in public testimony. So I'm not here to talk about, you know, <laughs> all the theories about how things happened physically on 9-11. I'm not, I, I don't, that's not quite the question. And it, what, what I think is important here is that the gate attendant himself says, these guys had extremely expensive one-way tickets from like Florida to New York. Why? And how did they pay for them? And, you know, and then you can go into, you can go read the 9-11 commission report because I think that what you want to do when you're dealing with the US government and its official publications is that you want to learn the various facts and then see if the way that they put the facts together, that is their theory of how the facts hang together, is actually coherent. So if you're a little skeptical of Arlen Specter's proposal about a bullet that reverses course in the case, in the case of the Kennedy assassination, which is very similar to 9-11 in having an officially promulgated line with a very low level of public consent by the American public year after year after year. In the case of 9-11, if you want to say, well... This had to do purely with Islamic terrorism. And please ignore the fact that Israel's really Israel's only ally in the Middle East is and has been the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, which also has a long and deep history with the Bush family, like personally. Then maybe we're dealing with something more complex than they hate us for our freedoms, which is what President Bush said at the time. So you're you're dealing with something where you actually have some precedent in this case, just by Israel with the USS Liberty, of attacks on American citizens, along with, in the case of 9-11, something much broader that even if you read the 9-11 commission report tells you they were putting this together for years, there were flight schools, there was this, there was that. And then you would have to go into, okay, well, who are these people? Okay, most of them are Saudi nationals. What are their various connections? Why did the FBI know about pretty much all these guys, but nothing happened, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. And then you can go into, well, okay, well, what were we ready to go with? So this goes, if you want to move from dancing Israelis to the Patriot Act, what were we ready to go with? Well, what we were ready to go with and what was implemented 
down to the level of uh, verbiage, what what was implemented was essentially an Israeli-style security state. Okay, but whereas in an Israeli-style security state, if you are an Israeli Jew, you are not under suspicion, right? If you're an Israeli Arab or you're a non-Israeli, you're under suspicion. In the American security state, everybody's under suspicion. So down to the level of verbiage, the the words homeland security, those were, those have been used in Israel for a long time to describe what they're trying to do and why they take draconian measures and why people are treated with extreme suspicion and why this and why that. So you move from an American setting where you can walk right up to the gate if you are just want to say bye to your cousin as he flies off. And the security that does exist is generally like metal detectors prior to 9-11, and it's administered by airport staff. Now you have a federalized bureaucracy inside a completely new department, the Department of Homeland Security, with an unending mandate to combat terrorism. Hmm. So you now have a United States that looks a lot more like Israel in its state functioning. Yeah, not to mention uh, the beginnings of a nice little industrial complex that would encourage you to manufacture right. yeah. homegrown right. terrorism, so you can keep the bureaucracy flowing. Right, love it. And 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 a lot of that a lot of that security complex builds off, and this this is down to the level of drone technology and lots of other things builds off and is and is sold to us by Israeli companies. So, you know, oh, we Dr. Could, Kuntz, we, you're going to make all of our haters think that the stupid lies about us are true. Um, <laughs> keep going. <laughs> um, so I think, I think what you're dealing with is that you are, and, and all of this is alongside the notion that Israel is our greatest ally. Right. And that's kind of maybe, that got, to go back to what I just said, maybe that's kind yeah. of really the key point here that you're making. Like if we're going to take some of the LCMS right now, we should probably be aware as the LCMS ministerium and, and people that whatever the U.S. is saying on the TV, Israel's not our greatest ally. This is yeah, not, it's and, just not true. Right. Yeah, it's just not because true. what what happens after after that and after the Patriot Act and anthrax is mailed to the senators who oppose the Patriot Act. Right. Um, if anyone wants to go look into anthrax and then Bruce Ivins commits suicide, but Bruce Ivins probably didn't do anything. And you can look into probably the most accessible thing on the run up to and the passage of the Patriot Act is Whitney Webb's reporting on it. And she's, the reason I, I appreciate Whitney Webb is partly out of nostalgia because she's kind of an old time leftist when they were still sort of yeah, would right. question government narratives. <laughs> yeah. She's not old, but she's kind of old timey. But I also appreciate it because it helps you understand certain things about, about COVID as well, because COVID is a somewhat similar situation to 9-11 in that our government's involvement is never unilateral and it is not as unanimously uniquely powerful certainly as it was as it used to be portrayed i mean today almost every american knows that we don't matter as much as we used to but back in 2001 we all thought that only we mattered so that also makes it difficult to discuss israel for example because it seemed like in a unipolar post soviet union world only what we did mattered so if we did something that a Muslim country, Muslim majority country wouldn't do. And Saudi Arabia was never mentioned. I mean, it was always, it was always Iraq. It was always Afghanistan. It was always Islamic terrorism. It was, it was eventually Iran. It still is Iran, right? What, what's going on there is that that means that like so many other things that we've talked about on this show, that Israel exits the realm of history as do we. Right. And at the time, Francis Fukuyama was was telling people in America that we were at the end of history. I mean, that that sort of made sense in the 90s. Now, it never should have, but it, but it did sort of make sense. Like, okay, everybody just wants to be like us. So that's great. And so obviously they do hate us because of our freedoms. What that meant that was that we stopped thinking about other countries and ourselves in ways that biblically you should think about all mankind as well as all nations, right? All peoples. Hmm. And that meant that they're they're sinful and they're looking out for themselves and they're fairly untrustworthy, except at close range when they're well known to you. All of these things should and should be and in fact are true. 
right? So I think that when you're talking about Israeli involvement in 9-11 or Saudi involvement in 9-11, which is more widely acknowledged, although not really on an like on the level of their official involvement or state involvement, more on the level of, oh, those are those guys are mostly Saudi citizens. But what you're really dealing with is the refusal either by what were then called neoconservatives or a lot of people today who still think, oh, well, you know, Israel's the only democracy in the Middle East or whatever, you know, Saudi Arabia is not as bad as the Taliban or something, is that you're not, you're not really evaluating other human beings in biblical terms. So you've got a whole set of your life where, you know, if you want to say, oh, Mossad didn't have as much to do with 9-11 as, you know, Saudi Arabia, that's fine. I, that's fine if you want to disagree with me. But what I'm most interested in is evaluating all human beings and all nations in a biblical manner. And that can't happen if you have a whole nation like Israel or the United States that is just so great <laughs> that nothing it does is ever wrong. <laughs> you know, or, or um, wrong enough that it can lose its status of being right. Right. Yeah. So, right. Yeah. Sure. We're, right. We're so great um, that we're going to be here until Jesus comes back like this or better because right. the first, I mean, this is the progressive myth, right? That progress is the, is the thing, but now we've reached because progress is the thing. It's only going to get better. And we've reached a really good spot. Can't get, I mean, it could get better. I yeah. guess we could all live in computers and fly to Mars, but um, that, that mythology, it is uh, ultimately you know, disappointing, disorienting and, and destructive uh, yeah. because you have to kind yeah. of compel a forced improvement on everything. And, you end up painting all the tombs white and ignoring what your fathers right. did. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, you do. You you end up having to lie to yourself. So um, even things that you know, you can't really allow into your own thinking, right? So they just have to sit in a locked compartment, mm -hmm. and that that is one chief way in which nations fall, right? And you can hear this in the hubris of the Assyrians when they besiege, but then are frightened away by the Lord's hosts from besieging Jerusalem is that the way that they talk about themselves is if is as if they are invincible. And that is not something that you're going to hear. And this is, I think this is always important if you want to understand politics and history, you have to listen to the group inside itself. In the case of understanding Israel, this is actually pretty easy because so much of their media is in English. So you don't need to know modern Hebrew in order to understand what's going on and how secular Jews are afraid of religious Jews and religious Jews are increasing. And you can, you can find out a lot of that stuff, right? You can find out how they handle immigration and lots of other things. So what I'm advocating here is that you just let things that occurred weigh on your thinking more than the pre-assigned categories you have for reacting to the event, yeah. which was in the American case, an enormous tragedy on a vastly larger scale than Pearl Harbor. But we reacted to Pearl Harbor very differently than we did to 9-11 because with Pearl Harbor, and there are questions surrounding what we knew and when we knew it and did Roosevelt do his due diligence. And you know, I think we've mentioned that. We can talk about it sometime. It doesn't matter that much. But we reacted against the people who actually attacked us. Whereas in the case of 9-11, initially, if anybody remembers this, the administration was very, very concerned about the Taliban directly and, and immediately about regime change with the Taliban, not just about the capture of bin Laden. And the circumstances of his interment are strange enough. Why, why was his body dropped in the ocean? Or why wasn't it buried in Afghanistan? Or, or what happened? I don't know, right? But why did we have to overturn the Taliban to make that happen? Oh, well, it was because it was a haven for terrorism. Well, there are lots of other havens for terrorism. So we made, we made a few since then, if I recall. Yeah, we and we <laughs> right, and we are we are what you know, California types who call an incubator <laughs> in some ways. Yeah. For for terrorism. The other really strange thing that happened after 9-11 is that the Muslim population at the time, and this is partly why selling the Muslims are the worst people on earth thing worked so well as it did in the media, if anybody was alive and cognizant of politics at the time, is because Muslims barely existed outside of like our three biggest metro areas. We had very, very, very few Muslims in the United States of America. 
the head population has exploded in the time since 2001. So whether you're talking about Somalis in Minnesota or Arabs in Omaha or wherever they might be, that the Muslim population of the United States is vastly larger than it was in 2001. And you would think that if they presented an existential threat by virtue of their religion to our freedoms, you know, which later got, you know, are still mocked as mo freedoms, right? If they presented such a threat, why did we bring so many? So what's happening here in all three of those things that the that the listener mentioned is that you're you're being asked to ignore things that are in front of you. And if you assent to that, then you'll assent to anything. And it's really the same with COVID. The biggest difference is that involvement with a foreign government in the case of COVID was somewhat different based on our very different relationship to mainland China than to Israel, where we're not exactly a client state of mainland China in the same way that Israel is an authorizing force for lots of things down to the state level, right? So Ron DeSantis signs bills in Israel. I mean, that's kind of weird, right? As do as do others. Usually bills against divesting from Israeli companies because of their treatment of Palestinians. In the case of mainland China, we don't have the same relationship, but we do have a high level business come academic relationship mm-hmm. with the Chinese. Investment right. even. Yeah. In- investment and and research, which has a nexus in biotech. So, so when you're talking about laws, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean that's that is part of it, right? Because almost anywhere in East Asia, but particularly mainland China, is going to be a much easier place to do things that you want in biotech than a Western country that your, has a different sell your liver yeah. there too, I think. Yeah, well, that's a whole, that's a whole separate trafficking, or what we old-fashioned people call slavery. Yeah, one night in Cambodia, man. One night in Cambodia. <laughs> that's a whole different. It's a different discussion. It's a longer discussion, anyway. It, but the, I'm, I'm just gonna, I'll leave it. But I think it's fascinating in that um, the understanding of the nuances of Southeastern Asia is probably major lacking point in most American high school yes. graduates world history. Yes. No, say. that's right. Yeah, that's right. So our relationship with the Chinese is simply on a different level and and it does not generally exist on on a on a specifically political level but on the level of expertise. That's why if you look into anything about COVID and and was it a lab leak and and what was going on at Wuhan University and blah 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 what you're going to find are a variety of people connected usually via contracts including including Dr. Fauci connected via contracts to one another. So there is mutually beneficial economic exchange going on. If you want to do some deep history on that, that has always been America's relationship to China. The Yankees who helped open up what was called the old China trade in the early 19th, very early 19th century, right after the revolution, they were there to profit. And that's always been our relationship to China. Uh, Others have differed. We had missionaries there. We had a lot of missionaries there, but it has always been a largely business relationship. That's very different than Israel. Israel has been a moral relationship as well as a business and military relationship. The relationship to mainland China is and continues to be, so far as we can maintain it, mutually economically beneficial. China's obviously sensing that they don't need us the way they used to. And they're pursuing a different kind of diplomatic and economic relationship with with Russia, as well as Brazil, BRICS, BRICS, and, BRICS. and India, right? And South Africa being kind of the oh man, the, the definitely the weakest brother there. Right? Did you hear India is going to change? They want to change their name. Did you hear that? They wanna, what are they going to change? I, it to? I can't remember it. They're going to it's it's a more indigenous name. Um, and I don't yeah, know what's so, going to happen. It's like a ruling party push, I think. Right. So it's it's a more, I, I, I would be willing to bet if it's coming from the BJP that it's a more Hindu-centric yeah. I'm name. I'm sure it is. I'm sure it's a religious okay. phenomenon okay. all the way around. And that, but, and that affects our foreign policy too, because okay. here's here's the thing about, <laughs> about India, is that we blindly despise Muslims very often in our foreign policy. And it's still easy to gin up a big, a very big part of the voter base, which is mainly, in generational terms, Xers and Boomers, against anything involving Iran. 
Now, that obviously serves Israel's interests, but it, it doesn't necessarily serve ours. And so when you're thinking about these things, it's not that they're completely disconnected. There's both patterns that reappear, like you need to know how your government officials are intertwined with foreign governments before you elect them or before they're reappointed or before they're confirmed in their nomination or whatever they are, however they got there, right? The NGOs but you, too. For the, yeah, for the NGOs regime. too, right? But you also need to understand what it is that those groups from their own inside perspective want and then make a very real calculation for your own part whether that is actually in your interest because your interest does not have to be the same as Israel's or China's or or whomever's. And that's something that we have been extremely weak in because Americans have relatively little direct experience of suffering at the hands of foreigners. Yeah, right, right. So we take right? it for granted, right? So we so yeah. we 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 become very naive about other people. We tend to think that they are just like we are or that they will behave according to standards of behavior yeah. Yeah. personally and nationally that, that we do. Our expectation right. system, our virtue system, you know, no one would ever do this. Okay. You know, black swan, man. <laughs> it's, it's never possible till it's possible. And somewhere on this planet, someone's probably willing to do it. And if you think, again, you can just pretend like there is no justice, there is no God, you know, yeah. There is no actual virtue system or natural law, and we'll just let everybody run wherever they want. You're going to see what man's natural law in corruption really is, and, and right. it is barbaric. Yeah. It is barbaric. Exactly, and and I think that 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 unbiblical view also affects the way that we think morally, right? So, mm -hmm. what you were referencing earlier is the idea that somehow it's like anti-Semitic, like you just you just despise all people of Jewish ethnicity, right, including right. Saint Paul. Right? right, because right. you criticize the modern nation state of Israel. The reason that anyone actually believes that, the biggest reason is that the message is just repeated over and over and mm -hmm. over again. Like, please see Elon Musk vis-a-vis -vis the Anti-Defamation League. Yeah, if right. that's just hammered into people's heads, then of course they're going to think that. But if you do a little bit of thinking, the way that it, they can trip up your thinking that way is to say that you are not allowed to think that other people are actually different from you. And they're, they're, I, I think that it is immensely disrespectful to other people to project your own mindset, national or personal, onto them. Instead of doing what you would do if you had to be a diplomat, like you actually had to live there and speak the language and in order to be useful to your own government, think from their side, not from yours is that maybe Israel, which has a long history of wanting to defend its very small, demographically fragile pot Jewish population, is not going to actually behave the same way that the United States of America does. Or that the Chinese, with a very different demographic situation, are going to behave in business, either in competition with you or in concert with you, in the way that you would if you, from Nebraska, were working with some guy from Mississippi. It's not just stupid. It also doesn't respect the fact that that is a different nation and they have a different history and they are a different people and they don't live the same way that you do. And refusal to acknowledge that is not, you know, a, a, some kind of virtuous, you know, affirmation that all human beings are created equal. It is simply refusal to see that God did not make all nations alike. And that when you ignore that, it's actually dangerous for your own nation. because Just because you're stupid doesn't mean that the Israeli guy is equally stupid about his own nation's interests or the Chinese guy. And this was horribly apparent when our, and this was still during COVID, we had that very weird summit in Alaska between our secretary of state and their foreign affairs minister from mainland China. And we just looked like amateurs because only an amateur would approach another adult human being and just begin immediately to lecture him morally. That shows a complete incapacity or just a disinterest. I mean, why not both? In the other human being, you don't have to understand him and then think that he's right or be like, wow, Israel, I get it. Like you want all Muslim countries to matter less and less and less and to be more and more, you know, fragmented and not a problem and you tried it with Syria but 
we really couldn't offer you the troops because it was after Iraq. So Assad's still there. You know, you don't have to be like, yes, I love that. That's so great. I agree with Israel's self-interest or China's self-interest, but it's stupid. You're not using the reason that God gave you. If you think that every other human being has to be just like you, and that is something that is probably less common today in the United States than it used to be. But in 2001, I can assure you that we all thought that the world wanted American freedom. The optics were built on that. The rhetoric was built on that. The overwhelming popularity of the Patriot Act at the time was built on that. Everybody wants what we have. So because we were attacked, let's go give it to them because everybody wants it. And that idea was characterized by somebody who probably spent his career in the CIA. That doesn't mean he was wrong about everything in the book Hubris, where he said, this is the beginning of our, you know, the denouement of our Greek tragedy. This is where it's going to end. So when I think back to 9-11, you could talk about causation and intelligence agencies and national self-interest and everything. And, and I, I think that's fascinating. I could do tons of episodes on this topic. But I think what's really interesting is looking back now from 2023, it is so easy to see that as the apex of American power and confidence. And it's all been downhill since then. Yeah. <laughs> Empire of naivety. The the thing that I, I, I understand it, and, and so I don't really say this as if no one else has had this thought or something, but... I know others have had this thought sitting around with cigars or whatever. They, they, they spouted this and it is the fact that the American empire, the regime, whatever epoch you're talking about, but let's just say post-World War One into World War Two and onward has been one of the strangest bipolar or, or multiple personality um, nations that I can kind of imagine on the historical record in that we, at the one hand, want to rule the whole planet, but we just kind of refuse to do it at the same time. And, and like somehow we want it all to be by, so I don't know, well, I guess the TV has gone a long way. But, you know, we, we are incapable of just acknowledging that the empires which rule the world tend to take over small countries that can't take care of themselves and use their resources. And generally the people that are better off for it, even though... They're minorities and or their servant populations and or whatever. And I'm not saying I actually advocate any particular policy. I'm saying it's really weird to try to rule the world with the sword while believing no one else will ever take a self-interest in defending themselves from you. Like that's that's just insane. I believe the term is blowback, right? But it's, it's more than just we send troops here and this little country gets mad. Uh, hubris, like you use the word there. Um, our expectation that we are so good and so virtuous that even if we did do it wrong, everybody would be okay with it and no one would enforce a penalty on us. I mean, if the U.S. defaults on all of its loans and the dollar goes to zero and it comes to a standing armistice between you know Cold War-esque powers, you know, they're going to yeah. be nice to us, right? They're going to let us off the hook because we we gave so much money away. No one's going to hold us to it, right? No, no, not right. And, and if you know Article 2 of the Augsburg Confession, you should know that without a question. And the fact that we don't shows you there's a disconnect between what we tell ourselves we believe about our theology and what we actually believe about people, about God, about the earth, and all these kinds of things. Um, and we, we're in a place of repentance then, right? Like, yeah. like the real issue here is to acknowledge that, oh, where I wrote it down, I want to lose it. I want to get this exact quote if I can. I'm not going to, yeah. That an awakening is always a matter of repentance. So yeah, do we need an awakening? Absolutely. The Missouri Synod, yes. You know, American Protestantism, yes. American Christianity, yeah. I mean, could the Catholic Church use like a Reformation? Yes. Okay. So what does that mean? It means repentance, which means acknowledging somewhere in the last three years, thirty years, hundred years, lots of things went off the rails. And I think we started here, Doctor Coons, with like, well, how about how about we find a version of the Bible, mostly from before it went off the rails. And read it a lot. What do you say? You know, could that could that bind us together? And, and as we we've gone round and round on like again first article things here, but to not discount that the Holy Spirit is beyond in with and under these words, uh, and the the framework that it gives us for understanding the beasts of Revelation, right? The 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 ten headed, cyclopic, horned monstrosity that is the city. That is the religion, right? Um, we have language for all of this and we have, we have nothing to fear. You're fond of saying we win. 
<laughs> we won. Uh, so with that, you know, we're, we're at the end. I don't think we can get to AI today. We'll have to maybe do that uh, yeah. another time. But I'll, you know, yeah, that deserves its own episode. Build, build on this and uh, and close us up if you would. When people think back to 2001, they will probably feel a sense of shock that they can remember that they felt at the time or or they saw in other people's faces that America was being attacked. That idea is not built on a knowledge of history. Lots of places in America have been attacked before. In the Civil War, in the War of 1812, nobody even remembers that, in the Revolutionary War. So the idea that America was immune from destructive violence is not really, uh, it's not true. The sense of immunity and the shock when that immunity was seemingly violated comes out of a sense that somehow we are not subject to the same processes of decay and judgment or awakening and change that the Bible tells us nations have. So what we're dealing with when we're thinking about 2001 or 2023, when I think it's easy to see that America is now self-attacking, that America has cancer in addition to some sort of assault from outside, that what has to happen is a radical kind of a change that would actually destroy the cancer because it doesn't actually matter at this point whether some similar attack had occurred in 2015 or will occur in 2024. What matters is that we are now attacking ourselves. The body is eating itself and destroying itself. And unless it's cut out, we will not survive because we are like every other nation in that we are accountable to God and mortal. If a ruler pays attention to lies, all his servants become wicked. Where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. But happy is he who keeps Torah. You're listening to A Brief History of Power. You know where to find us or you wouldn't be here. The Hebron Collegium is a gap year Bible school for men in Rockford, Illinois. Semi-monastic boot camp for Christian living. Cowards and slackers need not apply. HebronCollegium.com What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. At 7,123 feet... You can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you. Natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out, and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, our Savior Pagosa Springs has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at our Savior Lutheran Church and School a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. 
If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament, where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest.